You're listening to Audio Agriculture, a podcast where three North Carolina Extension agents talk plants, animals, and everything in between. Welcome to Audio Agriculture. This is our third episode, and we are joined with Chris Mormon from NC State University here. Uh, Chris, could you go ahead and just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? So I have been working at NC State for over 20 years. I think it's probably 21 years this May. I'm a wildlife ecologist. For my first eight or nine years, I had extension responsibilities at the university. So a large portion of my job was to do extension wildlife work. So I was was titled an extension wildlife specialist. Um, I moved to a different role in 2008, but I did spend a lot of time uh, working with county agents and traveling the state on issues related to wildlife, all issues related to wildlife during those years as extension specialist. The reason why I think, uh, you know, this is an in general, an agricultural podcast. And the reason why that I wanted to get Chris on here is that I think we talk a lot about, um, you know, our farms and what we're growing on the farms and different crops, but, you know, our, our, our farms don't exist in a vacuum. Um, they're surrounded by native lands. They interact, um, with all of the, you know, the wildlife and the insects. And, um, I think sometimes it's easy to kind of view our farms as, you know, so isolated, but really they're, you know, part of a greater ecological footprint. Um, and Chris, I, I kind of stumbled upon, uh, you through NC state and it looks like you're doing a lot of really interesting research, looking at all kinds of different things. Um, one thing that I know is really, uh, popular right now, we get a lot of calls, people talking about quail, uh, in North Carolina. So could you talk a little bit about just the quail um, population in North Carolina and uh, kind of what we're seeing uh, with the quail decline? Sure. So in North Carolina, our species of quail is northern Bob White, and there are other species of quail out in the western U.S. So we have northern Bob White, and it's kind of an iconic bird of the southeastern U.S. But over the past 50 or 60 years, the populations have slowly declined, and it's pretty clear that that decline has been driven primarily by loss of habitat. Almost everything we do on the landscape now is bad for quail, unfortunately. So, um, you know, I, the, some of the examples of the problems for quail are forests have matured and their canopy has closed. So that shades the ground and doesn't allow the plants to grow near the ground where quail live. Our um, pastures, the pastures we've introduced, Bermuda grass and tall fescue pasture, uh, have a structure that's mat forming at ground level that's not suitable for quail. So they're not, that's not habitat for quail. Urban areas are not habitat for quail. Um, our, our agricultural, our traditional crop, cropland agricultural areas have potential for quail. But when we have very clean farming where those weeds that used to occur, um, are eliminated through herbicides and um, other forms of technological advancements, then that's also a loss of habitat for quail. So quail are in a dire situation. I will say, based on my research that I have done across mostly eastern North Carolina, the greatest potential to restore quail is in areas of, of cropland. Um, so where we have large expanses of cropland production on the landscape, um, those crops, especially like soybeans, provide habitat for quail when they're green and up. 
Um, and then if we can provide some non-crop vegetation along field borders or odd corners or low productivity areas, that really puts the icing on the cake to allow us to sustain quail. Um, the last thing I'll say about Bob White quail is that there, there are additional challenge for them because they require a fairly large portion of the landscape to be habitat. So we can't just create a little patch, you know, a one acre patch on our farm and expect quail to be there um, because they need lots of habitat over multi-thousands of acres. And that has a lot to do with how they disperse across the landscape. Um, quail inherently die. <laughs> Most quail die. So only about 10 or 15 percent of the population is going to live through the year. So there, there's a need for those for individuals that do survive to move around and repopulate areas where the quail have died. So I just said a lot of stuff, um, but uh, hopefully that gives you an overview of the state of Bob White in North Carolina. Yeah, well, it's definitely interesting uh, that they they tend to go into or that they can exist in soybean fields. Um, is that something that you guys have done studies at? Because to, to me, that kind of seems like a little bit of a surprise, I guess, um, but also a promise, I imagine, because of how many soy, soybean fields or large soybean tracks are down east. Um, is that something that was a surprise to you? Well, no. Um, and they can't survive in a soybean field alone. I mean, that, that's a part of the hole that the quail can use during the period of time when those soybeans are up. Because those soybeans pr uh, provide what we call umbrella cover. So when you have a soybean field, you have the green plants that are that kind of form like a canopy in, from the perspective of a little six-inch bobwhite quail. But below that canopy of soybeans is bare ground, maybe some residue if it's a no-till no soybeans. So that residue attracts insects. So the quail and the quail chicks can walk around and peck and eat the insects with that protection from that overhead soybean plant. Um, but once the soybeans are harvested, um, then that that area is no longer habitat. And, you know, that's a big issue with quail and, and cropland systems is that we tend to harvest all the crops in the fall. And then a huge portion of the landscape is just dirt throughout much of the winter. So quail then get relegated to um, whatever's left on the landscape, usually woody patches, recent timber harvest, uh, bramble patches, that kind of thing. Um, so, Are quail native... Like go if you go back a good ways, have they always been native? Because like, isn't it? Uh, what's it? I don't know what pheasant it is, but the pheasant that's out west that like you know wildlife programs are trying to create habitat and stuff. Where like, because that one came from China way back when I think right was it China? Yes. Um, so that's what like is has Bob White always been like a North American? Like, was it truly native hundreds of years ago, or was it? Did we introduce it somewhere along the line? Uh, good question. Absolutely. Ringneck pheasants are from Asia, but northern bobwhite are native to the southeastern U.S. They've always been here. I think the question that some people might ask is that what what was the historical abundance of quail? And, you know, were they always kind of uncommon and patchily distributed or were, were there's a period of time when they were super abundant as they were in the 1900 middle middle part of the 1900s? I don't think we can answer that, but I, I would suspect that the state of quail now is probably as low as it, it's ever been, at least in recent history. Right. Yeah. Growing up, I always heard stories uh, from my dad of when, you know, when I was six or seven and he would say, you know, when I was your age, it was nothing to go. If we were mowing pastures and stuff to, you know, uh, push up, you know, quail or a pheasant here or whatever, and, like you would always see them. And then we, our farm eventually got surrounded by neighborhoods and, 
you know, the, just the decline of wildlife and that, you know, we had 200 acres and, uh, yeah, he always said like growing up as a kid, they could walk down in the meadow with a dog and it was just wild quail that, you know, they would just stumble upon. And so like I had a bird dog in high school and I used to raise quail I would hatch out like 300 a year and throw them out. And like, yeah, like a week later, there's maybe you'd maybe see a handful just like scurry across and like, well, you, you made it to see how much longer you can hang on for. Yeah. Unfortunately that's the state of quail management. Now it's releasing pen raised birds in places that really aren't habitat. Um, They don't long, they do provide a, it's called put, put and take. So you're stocking to the gun. That's provide an opportunity for hunters, but it's not, you know, it's not a real, experience like you would have with wild birds and huge expanse of habitat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, you know, the state, our state wildlife agency has attempted to create, to restore some areas of, of landscape for quail. It's a very, it's a difficult challenge because there's so many competing economic interests, um, urbanization, you know, uh, you know, high intensity forest fiber production, intensive technologically advanced agriculture. Again, all those things are just not great for quail. So you have to have landowners or a, or a landscape of landowners that are willing to allow some weeds to persist here and there. Um, and, you know, with quail, we've seen time and time again, if you're in the right landscape, it's dominated by agriculture, and you build it, the quail will come. I mean, it's that simple. If you make some habitat in a place that's already already has habitat, you will increase your quail, and proportional to how much habitat you put on the ground. So we put field borders on farms in eastern North Carolina, and if it's in the right landscape and you put field borders on the farm, you double your number of quail within a year. Now, the problem is if you're doubling very few quail, <laughs> you don't have, that's not a lot of quail still, but you're, you're making progress. Yeah. Yeah. Two to, two to four quail is a huge statistical jump, but it's still four quail. <laughs> yeah. In our, in our region is what's, what's quail's biggest predator? Is it fox, hawk, what? Um, yeah, everything is quail. Um, that's why they don't survive. Um, I think it depends on the time of year and what you're talking about. The the major predator of the adults would be aerial predators, hawks, uh, you know, notably Cooper's hawks. And many, well, I would say some have attributed quail declines to predators, especially hawks. But I always say that hawks and quail have coexisted ever since there were hawks and quail. I mean, that's just the way it is. The problem now is that Quail don't have the habitat, the cover that they need to escape predators at the level that's required for them to persist in some areas. Anash, you had a question? Yes. Um, besides habitat, what's the um, relationship between um, the soybean and the quail? Is there anything special um, about uh, them? I think it could be, um, you know, being a legume, it may have something to do with the soil quality associated with that. I think it's probably more uh, related to the no-till component of some soybean production. That no-till, we know um, no-till agriculture is better environmentally. Um, I've seen it with a number of studies where that residue attracts insects and maybe even earthworms that are beneficial to Bob White, some songbirds. And even we did a study on American woodcock in eastern North Carolina, where we saw woodcock were most abundant in no-till soybean fields compared to conventional tilled fields and even corn or, or cotton or, or even wheat. So that no-till soybean seems to be really good for a lot of cropland-associated animals. But 
really the, the non-crop, fallow, weedy vegetation along the margins is where you get your biggest bang. And it's not just quail, it's rabbits, it's songbirds. Um, you know, it could be some things people don't like, like snakes and rats. But, um, you know, that's the whole picture of what you get when you create habitat like that. Yeah. So you had mentioned you'd mentioned field borders when you said you had to put in field borders. What so what is a field board? Because I think of so I'm not from out west and we put in like hedgerows, which are kind of like, you know, buffer strips, I guess. But, yeah, there's all these different names. So what what in your mind are are you saying when you say a field border? Yeah. So with field borders, I'm referring to uh, uh, you're right, a range of conditions, but primarily just strips of non-crop vegetation along the margins of a field. And those strips could occur along the farm uh, cropland forest border. They could occur along the border with a road. They could uh, occur along the border of a ditch. You know, if they occur along the border of a ditch, you're getting additional benefits of filtering water um, that, that occur there. It's really simple to get a field border. All you do is stop tilling it and you'll get what we call fallow vegetation that comes up from the seed bank. That'll be goldenrod and dog fennel and mare's tail and maybe partridge pea, maybe some blackberry. You know, the challenge over time is that eventually you get woody plants like pines and sweet gums that come in. So you have to constantly disturb it to keep it in that early successional state, which is so beneficial to quail and rabbits. Um, there's a concept I'm sure you are familiar with, the concept of precision, precision agriculture, where a farmer can analyze the property they're, you know, they're farming and look for the areas that are high in low productivity. And those low productivity areas may be costing them. So instead of farming them, you can put them into fallow non-crop vegetation. Um, may save yourself money there, but then the farm bill provides uh, funding, rental rates to pay for the farmer not to farm that land. So not only are they not spending extra money on low productivity land, but they're getting a rental rate to put that land in conservation. Um, so there are a number of farm bill programs that could provide that. There is a, a practice in CRP called the Upland Borders for Quail. And I assume it's still available, but that was specifically to create fallow field borders for Bob White. Um, the last thing I'll say is that landowners, people in general, have what I call the planted mentality. It's this desire to plant. So if we want to attract wildlife, you know, the first thing I do is got to go plant something. More often than not, it's not necessary to plant. There's a seed bank just ready to blossom if you allow it to. So you can allow the things to come out of this, the soil, and that's typically going to provide all the habitat you need. You just got to step back and then manage that plant community that way. It's a lot less expensive. You don't have to pay for the seed to plant. You just let Mother Nature do the business. Um, you just have to be willing to appreciate that weedy condition. And that's hard, I know, um, because some many landowners, they see that weedy condition, they go, oh, my gosh, I got to clean that up. But that's where the critters live. So you got to. And if you're a rabbit hunter and, you know, your neighbor's like, oh, look at that weedy area. You didn't take care of that. And you go, well, I got a freezer full of rabbits. So, so you know, so it's a nice trade off. So what, one thing you said kind of stuck out to me, you said that. Uh, you know, returning it to a kind of like an early successional um, plant seed bank is very beneficial for quail. So historically, what was, you know, restoring things to an early successional, um, you know, to provide that habitat so it wouldn't all just grow up to trees? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and that's something that 
uh, I think researchers and biologists talk about a lot. And I think that goes back to that point I made early. We don't know historically the relative abundance of quail because we don't know what kinds of disturbances were occurring hundreds or thousands of years ago. But in short, disturbance is necessary to keep a plant community in early succession. And certainly historically that the big disturbance was fire. So this could have been lightning fire, but in, in our part of the world, I would argue that it was probably more Native American fires. So that kept plant communities um, in an early succession state with less woody vegetation and more grasses and forbs. Um, certainly Native American um, agriculture, whether it was, you know, uh, kind of long-term agriculture or nomadic agriculture, created disturbance that set back succession. And then, there, you know, there's lots of other disturbances, ice storms and, and flooding and hurricanes and tornadoes that create little patches of disturbance. But that's not that's not a big deal across the landscape. So fire probably was a key yeah. feature. Is is uh, is segmentation, you know, like our modern systems of, you know, having things divided by roads and different landowners and things like that. Is that more of a problem than, you know, because I know that's for certain species that can be a huge like like a uh, an outsized influence on their their populations if they can't move freely in different areas. Is that an issue for quail as well? Do, do they have a tend to kind of roam huge, and move between the huge areas? issue for quail? Huge issue for quail because um, you don't have that consistent um, initiative to create quail habitat across a large landscape. It's an issue for all. I would say it's an issue for any animal, and even for white-tailed deer. If you're a landowner and you're interested in managing for white-tailed deer, and you own you know one parcel. You're, you're going to be limited in your ability to influence that white-tailed deer herd because you only own and affect a small portion of that herd. You know, a deer might have a square mile home range. So um, you're not only not affecting the herd, you're probably not even affecting all of the, the area that a single individual covers. So it's a challenge. Um, some animals are more... Uh, robust or resilient to landscape fragmentation than others. The animals that aren't resilient are the ones that are in decline, like northern bobwhite and many other endangered species that are associated with fire-maintained forests, like red woodpecker or gopher tortoise or other critters like that that don't do well with fragmentation. So since you've been all over the state with wildlife stuff, and I'm sure you've studied numerous species and different animals and What's your, what's your, like, if you're, if you're looking at your calendar and you got that one place coming up, you're like, that's your favorite spot to go in North Carolina to do research. And also what animal is your favorite? Would you say to research as well? What, what, what is, what is that one you look forward to going to? You know, a lot of people in my kind of position specialize and they spend their whole careers either working with the same species or with the same group of species. So they may study a single songbird or they may just study songbirds their whole career. In my master's work, I studied hawks. I looked at hawk nesting ecology. So that got me interested in birds. And then when I did my Ph.D., I studied songbirds. So I got really interested in songbirds. I was always a bird person. And I specifically studied a bird called a hooded warbler. It's a neotropical migrant that spends the winters in the tropics and it comes back to North Carolina in April and then stays until September. So the hooded warbler is probably my favorite animal in North Carolina. 
But since I've come to NC State, I have studied a huge range of animals from salamanders to lizards to rats <laughs> to um, not bats, but uh, woodcock, white-tailed deer, coyotes. And now I have a huge project on wild turkeys. So, uh, you know, I'm interested in all those animals. They're all exciting because they're all different. I learn something every day um, with the same animal or with a new animal. You know, I, in terms of where to go in the state, I mean, I love portions of the coast in the winter. Uh, Pea Island or Alligator River National Wildlife Refuges, they're incredibly alive with tundra swans and waterfowl and all kinds of critters. I just saw a big uh, black bear out at uh, Alligator um, a couple yeah. weeks ago. Um, just sitting on yeah, the side of the some, road, just hanging out. Just Somebody bear. told me once that they consider Alligator River the Yellowstone of the East. And so you can take that or leave it. But it's a wild place with red wolves and black bears and bobcats. And it actually has a good, healthy portions of that have a healthy population in Northern Bob White, too. Cool. I've never been. I'll have to go check it out. I've never been, been down there. Yeah. yeah. Everyone drives right by it when they head out to the Outer Banks. Yeah. Now you've kind of evolved, it sounds like, to more of a generalist. Um, do you feel like, you know, I, I think there's, you know, people will debate the advantages of a generalist versus a specialist. But do you feel like there's a lot of, um, you know, things that you can carry over from one species to another that helps you better understand, um, you know, if, you, if you're working with turkeys all of a sudden now, you know, do you find that there are... are lessons you've learned from other species that really carry over or is it kind of as specialized as some people might make it seem? Yeah. So that's a good point. I am a generalist in terms of the animals I work with. I, I do, I can sell myself specifically or, or uh, brand myself specifically as the person in NC state that's focused on the relationships between animals and land use. So I look at that relationship between animals and the habitat and how humans are influencing that habitat. You know, my goal is always to help help agencies or landowners continue to uh, have a working land, but do so in a way that might be most sustainable to their goals. And if their goals are wildlife, I think that's where I come into play. Certainly, my generalist nature across the different types of animals has helped me. So, you know, I'm working with wild turkeys now. That's a ground nesting bird. And my work with other ground nesting birds like northern bobwhite and a bird called a Bachman sparrow that nests in longleaf pine communities helps me understand ground nesting bird ecology. Um, I've studied coyotes, so I understand to some degree coyote ecology in North Carolina, and it may help me understand them as predators of the other species I study. But, um, you know, I'll say more than ever, we always need to build partnerships and collaborate with people that have a variety of expertise um, because it it helps us produce better results. It helps us come up with the best answers. So, I, you know, I partner with the agencies. I partner with people at universities that have expertise in other animals. They may have expertise in uh, different forms of land use, or they may understand um, statistics better than me, or they may understand humans. So, you know, humans play a big role in how successful we are. So I partner a lot with social scientists that can bring in the human aspect because I can tell you exactly what you need to do on your farm to get Bob White or turkeys or to get rid of whatever animal you don't like. But that doesn't mean you're going to do it. <laughs> so then we have to understand how do we work with people to, to achieve these goals in a way that's, that's most sustainable. Yeah, definitely. 
Anas, did you have a question? You look like you had a question. Yeah, well, um, the question I have, probably going to take you out of this a little bit. Uh, maybe you can save it for the end. So my question is for a high school student who wants to grow and be like you. What would you advise him? That's a that's a great question, and we um, definitely we always are looking to recruit new students with a passion for the outdoors and nature into the field. Um, I would tell them to go outdoors, to get involved in outdoor experiences, to get a, to buy yourself the best pair of binoculars you can afford, um, to take notes, to keep records, to try to uh, visit wild places that are interesting, um, to try to partner with professionals that may be willing to let you tag along and come with them. Um, but if you can't do that, just go to a local local park or nature center um, and, and visit and start learning that way. Um, certainly, you know, if you want to get into college, you got to do well in class. <laughs> so, you know, do well in your studies. But I think universities and, and, and colleges are also looking for well-rounded young people. So, um, you know, not only do well in the class, but try to get external experiences will help make you competitive. So, um which classes they probably need to take in college or which degree they probably need to pursue in that case? Well, if you want to be a, a wildlife biologist, uh, North Carolina has one four-year program to study wildlife biology, and that's at NC State. Um, our degree is called Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. Um, there is a two-year program at Haywood a Community College that um, can prepare you to transfer to NC State or, or, or give you an associate's degree in wildlife management or fisheries management. Um, the classes are going to, you know, NC State, the classes the first couple of years are just kind of the standard um, general education courses in math and chemistry and physics and English and then some introductory courses in conservation. And then when you get later in your degree, you're going to specialize. And you may take my class on habitat management. Um, I teach a class this semester, a co-teach a class on wildlife techniques outdoors um, because of COVID. So we're, we're doing outdoor stuff where, anim, where students are learning how to trap animals and identify animals and uh, monitor animals and that kind of stuff. Um, this Friday, we're going to be doing radio telemetry. So the students are going to learn about putting transmitters on animals and tracking them using radio telemetry. Wow. That's cool. How do uh, three extension agents get uh, signed up for that <laughs> class? <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, I wanted to bring us. So, we we kind of started out kind of like a micro uh, looking at um, you know riding on bobwhite quail, and I kind of wanted to bring us out to like a bigger um, look at our, our our species. So, I think oftentimes people when they think about uh, wild areas or they think they have to go to wild areas to experience nature, you know, like well, even like you know, you said get a pair of binoculars and go to, uh, you know, a space, a park, uh, 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 you know, a, a somewhere, a state park or, a, a you know, you got to go somewhere. Um, but I think, you know, we as humans exist in, in nature, we are nature, we're natural. Uh, we may, you know, pave over a lot of things, but we are nature. Um, so I think when people think of wildlife in their fields, they think of maybe controlling, you know, kind of dominating or controlling something that's causing a problem. So what for, for a farmer, what is something, um, this an advantage of, you know, having wildlife? I know that, 
I don't, I, you know, I'm not an ecologist, but I know that, you know, proving why you need to maintain something is a hard thing to do. Um, but in your mind, I'm sure you've been asked similar questions. You know, what, 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 I don't, I don't want you to have to prove why, you know, we need to maintain Bob White quail, but what, what do you see as a, as an argument, um, I guess for this, or, you know, how do you, how do you approach that type of questioning from people? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. A, a couple of things first, um, in terms of just backing up a little bit, you don't have to go to a park or a natural area to see cool animals. You can just do it in your backyard. So, I, you know, I got cool birds in my backyard. If you're a farmer, you inherently are going to have some cool animals on your property. Um, maybe those aren't the animals you want. So again, you know, as you try to learn about the animals on your property, you need to understand the natural history of those animals. And that can help you understand that. That's like, what's the food and cover they require? That can help you understand how to get more of them or how to get less of them. Um, the debate about whether you want more or less is a difficult one, as you said. Um, certainly, people make arguments about the um, the unknown future potential benefits that may we may accrue from animals if we conserve them. Um, there, there are a myriad of documented benefits of a wide array of animals to human health. Um, certainly, you can make the argument that you know every cog in the wheel. Aldo Leopold said every cog in the wheel was important. So if we allow one animal to go extinct, then it may make the whole system kind of fall apart. Uh, I'm not sure how well that sells to landowners. Um, maybe some, I mean, the landowners have to tell me, you know, I, I think there's some level of ethical obligation as a landowner um, to do what's best um, for the environment as best as you can within those limitations. I, I think there's most, most landowners that I know have a pride um, in what they do on their lands. And I think um, if they know they're conserving animals, I think that can contribute to that pride. Certainly from a community standpoint, there are certain animals that we know contribute um, to the community economy. So game animals like turkeys and deer um, can lead to a lot of money that comes into the community or to the state. Um, researchers are starting to look at that more and try to document that because money, you know, money, people thinking money, money talks. So it's important for us to think about the economic value of animals. It's really easy to kind of figure out the direct economic value, but then this, this idea of non-market value is a little harder to pin down. Like how much do people, how do we take the value that people have in animals and, and convert it to dollars? That's a little more difficult. Um, there are some animals, you know, if you're a farmer, there's certainly animals that can be help contribute to integrated pest management. So birds and bats, and quail eat insects and you know without them certainly insects would become pests so you know without predators of insects um you're going to have some of the insects that is going to be difficult to farm and, you know insects eat insects so there's a lot of interest in promoting beneficial insects that may parasitize pest insects so it's a really complicated system and if we don't value the whole system then i think there's a lot of uncertainty in how well it's going to work into the future so I got a question for, cause I'm, I'm the, I, cause I, you know, being the livestock agent, I get a lot of questions about, you know, coyotes and this, and like, you know, I don't, I don't see a lot of, which I'm sure you've seen it in your research too, is like, yeah, I mean, a coyote, pack of coyotes will occasionally get the calf, you know, a calf, but that calf most of the time is either just born or sick or something's wrong or, you know, I, I don't see it. I don't see it as 
much of a problem as like some people see it, I guess. Um, but my question is, is like, what is, is it a better management tool? Cause like what I've been told is that they're induced ovulators of like, if a female, they don't hear her call anymore, that induces the ovulation of the other females in the pack. Is that true? <laughs> well, let me say a little bit about coyotes. So certainly coyotes are always the blame. You know, they're easy to blame. The poor coyote, it always gets blamed. Coyotes are an incredible example of uh, persistence across the North American landscape. They've been persecuted. They've had bounties on them. Um, they've been hated, but they've persisted. They've actually colonized Eastern North America um, over the past decades. You know, North Carolina didn't really have coyotes in the middle part of the last century. So we started getting coyotes in the late part of the last century and even into early 2000s in some counties. But now we have coyotes everywhere. They're very successful. They're generalist. Um, they're not going anywhere. Uh, I do, you know, I do hear a lot of times that producers blame coyotes for uh, calf mortalities, and certainly coyotes will kill calves. I think you talk to a lot of biologists, and they tell you more often than not, it's the it's the it's the local feral dog or the free ranging dog, and not the coyote that killed the calf. So be aware that it's not always the coyote. If it is the coyote. It's going to be very difficult to capture the individual that caused that problem. If you do, you know, if you do kill that individual, that, sh that certainly could help. Um, but there's always going to be another one to take its place. Um, coyotes do have something called compensatory mortality, Clint. And that may be what you are hearing is that when coyote densities are reduced greatly, uh, the females can respond with, with greater litter sizes and maybe um, younger individual females may come into estrus when they otherwise wouldn't. Okay. When coyote densities are high and stable, they form territories. So the adults will form territories and those territories are defended. And that kind of prevents the young individuals from being able to um, re reproduce and have territories there. So only, only when individuals are, individuals are removed, will others be able to move into that reproductive state. What, what you what was the word you used? Compensatory reproduction. Compensatory reproduction. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew I I knew I'd heard like that kind of concept somewhere because like yeah, induced ovulation just didn't make sense to me because like they are a canine. I'm assuming uh, yeah, that they're, they're a canine, the can, yeah. they're a canine family of like that's not how normal canines ovulate, but. Um, yeah. So like, that's, that's kind of what I see is like, as a livestock agent is like, yeah, like the coyote is always the blame. But then in my mind, I'm thinking of like, okay, well you can go shoot as many coyotes as you want, but that's not going to solve your problem because yeah, if you're this, you know, if they have this reproductive system of how they repopulate based on the density of their actual species, well, the more you take out, the more you're going to get back. So are you better off management style? Like, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, instead of actually shooting the coyote, are you better off letting it, letting them have that one calf and trying to scare them off versus shooting them? Because then you have the reverse effect of then the next female that's close by is going to have a litter of three or four instead of one or two. Or Well, that, that's a, that's a good segue into, into kind of a management style. I previously you had mentioned, I think you said food and cover. Um, is that a management strategy for coyotes? If people are trying to manage coyotes? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I would say in this case, it's good husbandry practices because in this case, the food is the calf. So what you want to do is create a, 
an environment where that food is not available to the coyotes. And I, I think the producers would know how to do that as well as anybody. You know, I, you know, I, I think manipulating a larger scale landscape to manipulate coyote populations is difficult. Certainly you can shoot them year round. Um, you can hunt them at night. Um, you know, you can trap them during the trapping season, outside the trapping season. If you're not on your property, you need to, you need to get a depredation permit to trap coyotes. Um, but again, you know, that's a, that's just an endless, somewhat futile endeavor to reduce coyote densities. It can certainly work with a real aggressive effort over the short term. Um, and if you like to shoot coyotes or trap coyotes, and you know, more power to you. Um, but the best practice, I think, is to create good husbandry, a good husbandry, husbandry situation to reduce the risk that coyotes could get to your calves during the calving season. Yeah, that's that's what I try to tell people, too, is like, you know, because I feel like I run into the situation a lot of like people complaining about coyotes and like, yeah, they lose that one calf. But like, can you really prove it was a coyote first off? So you're going to blame this entire wildlife species that's just trying to coexist in this world with us. And, you know, it, you can do all the management practices you want. But if your neighbor, Johnny, isn't doing what, you know, if he's just letting his calves run loose in the woods and everything else, you know, it goes back to the Bob White stuff of like, they have a greater area than just you. Like you can plan, you can have all the buffers you want, but I can't guarantee you you're going to get Bob White just to, you know, so it's, I, you know, I feel like they catch a bad rap, but you know, it's, they're just part of the system, I guess. So. Yeah. And you do create a vacuum. Um, we did, we put GPS transmitters on coyotes on Fort Bragg and some of the individuals, the younger individuals that are called transients left Fort Bragg and several of them went, um, hundreds of miles away. We had one that left Fort Bragg and went to Richmond, Virginia, and another one went down to Columbia, South Carolina. So the coyotes are moving great distances across the landscape to fill these these spots that are vacated when other individuals die. Wow. That's cr- that's crazy just to think though, like Fort Bragg to Richmond. How did you make it to Fort Bragg to Richmond? Cross how many roads does that animal cross and not get hit by a car? Like yeah. you know. That's great. That's a good point because it actually, we watched the GPS track. A lot of the GPS track went up the west side of I-95. So the individual never was able to cross 95, which you would imagine would be a difficult road to cross. So uh, that, that actually reminds me, I saw a video recently uh, tracking whales um, outside in the Atlantic. And they were tracking, uh, they overlaid whale tracks with shipping lanes and they were looking as the whales, uh, were avoiding these shipping lanes. So you think of, uh, you know, a, a ship is just a boat out in the middle of nowhere, but these whales were actually really avoiding a shipping lane, which is pretty fascinating. Um, there must be, you know, some acoustic problems or something like that. Um, but it did kind of ri- remind me when we're talking about these coyotes and I imagine other animals in that segmentation. Um, do you see, um, out West, there's a lot of, um, work going into these like freeway overpasses, um, for different, usually, um, larger, you know, moose or something like that to cross over freeways. Is there any traction for that here? Or do you think that that's something that's even necessary? Yeah, there's traction here. It's very expensive. Um, so there has to be a lot of support. There has to be funding for that. I think there has to be good justification for that incredible expense. Overpasses are the most expensive because you have to create that somewhat natural environment over the top of a road. 
In my class, I talk, I give some examples from Banff National Park in Canada. They have some beautiful overpasses. In North Carolina, we already have several wildlife underpasses in place. Um, I'd say the most uh, well-known ones are going out US 64 east, uh, just east of Plymouth, between Plymouth and Columbia. There are three uh, underpasses there for black bears. And if you take a close look, you'll see the fencing. Um, it's hard to see it, but there are there's fencing that runs a long distance along 64 that funnels individuals into that underpass. And that would be bears, um, maybe deer, certainly a lot of other animals, even red wolves if they were there. Um, you know, deer, are, deer require a little more open underpass. So it, every animal has a different requirement in the kind of underpass it will use. Um, but I do know that there's interest, there's collaboration between the North Carolina Department of Transportation and the Wildlife Agency and maybe the Fish and Wildlife Service to think about these uh, underpasses in the future. Not only does it help the animals, but it helps reduce uh, vehicle collisions and potential um, human safety problems, deaths, or even, you know, major uh, cost to vehicle damage. Yeah, my wife just got a deer like a month ago with, <laughs> with her bumper. And that was, yeah, that was nice. So Chris, when, so I imagine now with, you know, kind of big data and being able to, like you said, yeah, put tracking beacons on coyotes probably for, you know, a fraction of the cost that it used to cost to track a coyote. Are we, are we, making strides in understanding populations and how they're interacting with us? Or is it still just so like such a big thing to try and understand um, that, you know, we're, we're a hundred years off from understanding it. Or do you feel like we're kind of like, we're, we're gaining traction on understanding ecological interactions. We are certainly gaining understanding there. The technology is moving fairly quickly I don't, I'm not sure the cost is going down, but I say the technology is advancing. So it's still expensive to put GPS transmitters on animals. Um, very expensive. Um, the key, I'd say one key advancement in the technology is that units are getting smaller and smaller, which allows us to put units on smaller and smaller animals. Um, they even are putting some units on insects. I'm not exactly sure. I don't do that, but they're, they're able to track insects now. Um, Battery life is an issue, so trying to come up with novel um, technologies that allow the batteries to last longer so we can track animals through their entire annual life cycle. There are uh, certainly, you know, there are lots of companies that make this equipment. There are even journals that are coming out now that specialize in information that comes from uh, movement data and, and remote tracking. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Roland Kays, who works at NC State University and the Museum of Natural Sciences really specializes in this with animals and he even has a podcast that's focused on um, stories about stories from researchers about animals they tracked. Um, we're put, you know, we're actually putting GPS transmitters on wild turkeys in North Carolina now um, on the hens. And that allows us to learn an incredible amount of information about hen movements, when they start their nesting, where they nest where they roost. We can learn about survival. I mean, we're learning things about turkeys right now in North Carolina that we never knew and that certainly was never, it was never possible to know this thing, know these things in the past without the technology. So uh, if somebody asks you, um, why do you need to know all that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, uh, people that pay for this should be very careful about why they, 
you know, why they're paying for it. Um, the turkey study we're doing in North Carolina is because, you know, turkeys have kind of reached a stable equilibrium in North Carolina after the restoration year. So, you know, turkeys were extirpated from most of the state in the 1960s and 70s, and they've made an incredible comeback. So now what we're trying to do is learn about turkey ecology to know um, what what makes turkey populations go, what could be potential threats to turkey populations in the future. We're collecting information on diseases. Um, we're also understanding turkey reproductive timing to know if the hunting seasons are timed correctly um, and to know, you know, make sure that we're allowing turkeys to reproduce before the hunting season occurs. So there's, there's lots of important things we can learn when we do this kind of work. Um, that can help make sure we sustain that population in the future, especially for a, a species like turkeys that are really important from a hunting perspective and from an economic perspective. Would you say that the, cause so I, we, I have a farm just over the line in Virginia, um, my wife's their family farm and, uh, and even my parents farm too is like, I feel like I'm seeing bald eagles a lot more than I ever did. Like as a kid. And I just, you know, I've, I feel like as an outsider, just a random person that has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to wildlife, I feel like I can kind of safely say, at least in my vision, is that like the bald eagle is kind of on the rise because I feel like I see them a lot. Like, now. and I mean, it's super cool to watch. I mean, they're, they're a really beautiful bird. And um, like when we do hay and stuff and we're mowing and you know we'll kick up fawns or you know you might hit the occasional rabbit with a hay vine and it'll be in the windrow like you know it's nothing to see a bald eagle out there uh i had one land one time uh it was a pack of it was a pack of turkey buzzards on or a flock i don't know what you call them um of turkey buzzards on a on a on a dead on a dead fawn out in the hay field and I mean, there had to be like six or eight of them. And this bald eagle lands like 10 feet away from them. And he just starts walking towards them and they all just scatter. And it was, it was like one versus 10. And he's just like, I'm just walking in here and just like, they all just disappeared. It was cool to watch. Um, but anyway, are they on the rise? Like, are they doing, they're doing good? And yes, bald eagles are doing quite well. They've been delisted. So it's been a real success story. One of the great success stories of the Endangered Species Act, bald eagles have been delisted. Uh, the, the main driver for eagle populations decline was the use of DDT. DDT uh, bioaccumulated up the food chain and caused the eggshells of eagles to be very thin, and they were they were having massive reproductive failure. When I was a kid, I'm, I'm older than you guys, and when I was a kid, to see a bald eagle was was like seeing a ghost or something. It was an incredible, rare experience. And now I live in Raleigh. And, you know, we we see bald eagles flying over the house quite regularly. So their populations have, are thriving. I mean, they're doing great. And again, they've been delisted. Um, yeah, you, you raise some other points. And number one is bald eagles are, are scavengers. <laughs> They'll eat carrion quite regularly. Sometimes that puts them at risk on the side of highways. Um, they're just like vultures. They will eat carrion. And the other point is that when you're mowing your hay field, you can mow up animals. So yeah. if you're really interested in animals, try to think about the timing of your mowing. Um, I understand you have to, you know, there's a time when you have to hay, when you have to cut the hay, because that's when it's the best nutrition. But, um, yeah, that's something to think about, too. Well, I think I think uh, that kind of reaches a point that Anas was talking about. You know, we we all appreciate eagles. I mean, it's the, the symbol of our country. Um, but if, you know, 
we, it was listed and steps were taken to, you know, maintain its habitat and figure out what was killing it. And, you know, so, thanks to scientists learning, you know, the DDT was bioaccumulating and then, you know, there's regulations. So I think often we talk about, you know, oh man, you know, what are all these scientists just doing, you know, out there doing whatever they're doing. But, you know, we can all agree that you see a bald eagle and, you know, you're, it's impressive to watch and they're, they're interesting animals. Um, so I think it's, it's, there's a lot of value to this wildlife. I think, you know, sometimes justifying it, you say, oh, you know, it, it costs too much money or something like that. But like you said, it, you know, it's, if you don't try and preserve these populations, well, they're, you know, they might just disappear. And then you'll really wish that, you know, we had the bald eagle back or, um, other things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff I think about is like, you know, cause I'm, I'm a third generation farmer. Like, I feel like I still kind of have that mentality of like, you know, I got to watch my cows, like, you know, coyotes are bad, but like, you know, I'm learning more and like adapting more and, uh, you know, they're just cool to watch. And, but you know, it's, I, I don't want to get to that point to where like you have this animal, like a, like, yeah, like a bald eagle of like, you're telling your grandkids, Oh yeah, they were this cool, you know, uh, majestic bird, but I can only tell you and show you pictures of it because you'll never see one. You know, it's, you know, I feel like that's, it's the obligation is on us as being the, the, the species that are, you know, I guess at the top of the food chain to take care of everybody else and do our part. And, yeah, in North Carolina, majority of the land is owned by private landowners. Private landowners play the key role in conserving animals. But I think anybody that, that's level-headed understands that these private landowners often own the land as, the, as their base form of income. So we have to work to find a balance to allow landowners, producers to continue to produce in a way that allows them to sustain their income, but maybe to integrate little steps that can help them also conserve animals in that context. And I, I think that's what the Farm Bill programs are meant to do. So, you know, I always encourage landowners to visit the opportunities under the Farm Bill. Um, always seek out technical assistance from your county extension office, from the North Carolina Forest Service, if it's related to forest management, and from the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, if you have questions about animals. The Wildlife Resources Commission has incredible expertise locally that can help any landowner. Um, I will make one other note. Um, because I think it's important to spread the word about this. The Wildlife Commission also has a hotline that uh, anybody can call if they have a question about animals, about nuisance animals, about just you know, any kind of question related to animals, they can call that hotline. And the hotline also has an email address. Um, and there it's staffed by some experts. And, and if they don't answer the phone, you can leave a message. But it, that's a really neat resource for landowners if they have questions about animals. And we will we will put a link to that in the notes for this podcast, so people can definitely um, find that out. Um, but just want to say thanks a lot, Chris. You know, very informative discussion. I'm really happy to have you on the podcast, and we appreciate your time. Um, so, if anyone has any more questions, you can always reach out to Chris Mormon. Uh, go on NC State, and uh, you can find his information there. If you have any questions for us, you can find all of our contact information at caswell.ces.ncsu.edu. Our music is the artist Cletus Scott Shot with the track Drinkin' Tea.